is there any rhythm or rhyme to the Psalms? Any semblance of structure? Or is the book of Psalms, as one modern commentary put it, just a storage cabinet for individual Psalms? This is the question that has been asked since the church fathers' times and even on throughout church history. Augustine, for example, who began preaching through the Psalms in AD 391, by the time he finished teaching through them all, 30 years later, and he has a six-volume commentary set on them, 600-plus pages, he writes this when he comes to the last Psalm, Psalm 150. He writes, let me set up this. Although the arrangement of the Psalms, which seemed to me to contain the secret of a mighty mystery, has not yet been revealed unto me, yet by the fact that they in all amount to 150, they suggest, somewhat even to us, who have not as yet pierced with the eye of our mind the depth of their entire argument, whereon we may, without being overbold so far as God gives, be able to speak. And it's at this point that Augustine then brings out a couple of theories of what he thinks the structure of the Psalms might be. Even as he brings them out, he's like, no, nah, it's probably not that. It could be this. No, nah, I'm not seeing that. Really, the only one he's okay with sharing that he thinks has some validity is that the Psalms, there are 150 of them, and every 50th, there seems to be a grouping. So he says of Psalm 50, it's about repentance. The 100th is about mercy and judgment. And the 150th of praise. So he goes on and explains, we are called by the preaching of repentance. We are justified in the calling of mercy and fear of judgment. He fears not judgment who has previously attained salvation. Being called, we renounce the devil by repentance, that we may not continue under his yoke. Being justified, we are healed by mercy, that we may not fear judgment. Being glorified, we pass into everlasting life, where we praise God without end. The verse wherein this psalm concludes, talking about the last verse of Psalm 150, the entire psalm, is the voice of life everlasting. Fast forward to two centuries ago, and we have Joseph Addison Alexander, who sums up this problem of, of the structure of the psalm. I think he puts it the most pithy, so we'll just look at him. He says, it, referring to the book of Psalms, it's the most miscellaneous of the sacred books, containing 150 compositions, each complete in itself, and varying in length from two sentences, such as Psalm 117, to 176 sentences in Psalm 119. As well as in subject, style, and tone, the work of many authors and of different ages, so that a superficial reader might be tempted to regard it as a random or fortuitous collection of unconnected and incongruous materials. In more recent times, scholarship has been investing more into this quandary, particularly godly men who have the presupposition that there's nothing accidental in the word of God. And it's really, it was really just about, people have dabbled with it in the 19th century, but really about 40 years ago, scholarship took a lot of heavy looks into, I should say pastors, because sometimes when you say scholarship, my mind goes like, well, are they liberal scholars? Do they even believe David was an author? Things like that. I'm talking about godly pastoral biblical scholars um, have spent more time in this. And really, there was a breakthrough work in the 80s that kind of, kind of paved, the, paved the road for reanalyzing this. Because any psalm commentary, basically since Augustine, people have said, there's probably some structure. I don't see it. I'm not exactly sure. I'm just going to deal with each individual psalm 
Um, so everyone was kind of satisfied after that. Well, that's what the guy before me did. That's what I'll just do. I'll just deal with that. Let someone just keep passing it on down the line, even though they recognize there's probably something. So anywho, um, in this book, The Flow of the Psalms, Discovering Their Structure and Theology, O. Palmer Robertson, this is a much more recent take on it, this is from 2015, explains the reasons as to how an understanding of the Psalter as a whole, the whole structure, can aid us. He argues, taking into account the structure of the Psalter makes two significant contributions to the interpretive process. One, it has the potential of uncovering internal connections among the various Psalms. Two, it provides additional light to each individual Psalms on the basis of this internal structuring. Both these elements have the potential of uncovering the richer meaning of the Psalter as a whole, as well with, ver with respect to its various parts. Now, what I'm not going to argue is that if you don't understand a wider um, structure of the Psalms, you're missing out and everything you believe about the Psalms is false or something like that, because the Psalms are individual. They, do, they are self-contained. They make sense within themselves. They explain what they are in some cases. This is when David's running away from Absalom, and that psalm relates to that. And if you're familiar with 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, the life of David, it's going to generally make sense. You're going to get richness out of it. God's going to bless you in the reading of it. Um, but this is like taking a dive really and studying into any book of the Bible. You know, you can always go deeper into it. And before we dive into the book of Psalms, which again, the next time I am planning to start with Psalms 1 and 2, and kind of make my way through various groupings of psalm in order as they go, um, then we'll hopefully benefit from, from understanding an, an overarching view of the psalms. Well, it is, we'll be getting into structural techniques, um, but let me just say that it is currently impossible to know exactly how the Psalter came together. Last time we talked about the dating of it, oldest one about 1500, or, well that's, it's BC, so 500 BC, 1000, majority of them are written during the life of David. He's the author of the majority of the Psalms. And some of the final ones sometime after 1500 BC because there's language about the return of the Jews um, post-second exile and all that. So we do know that there are some, some edits to the Psalms. We'll see that when we get into the five-book structure. And so at some point, someone arranged these we don't know who, but um, the question is, did they arrange them in any kind of sensical order, or is it a helter-skelter, random, toss the die, throw that book in there? As that one commentary says, it's just a junk drawer for all these songs, basically. All right, so from here, we're going to see about a dozen basic structures in the Psalms, and this is just a few of them. There are a lot more I could have got into. I'm going to have a lot of charts and graphs. I was joking with my wife, like, I grew up dispensationalist. We had so many charts and graphs. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take them back. So I think, I think I joked with Joe that like John Hagee can't shake a stick at how many charts and graphs I'll have today. So, all right. So we want to see the um, superstructure of the Psalter to see if, if the structuring of the Psalms, if it makes any sense, or macro structuring, kind of zooming out, seeing the book of Psalms as a whole. The most obvious division of the Psalter that we have is that it's divided in five books. If you grab your Bible and just turn to Psalm 1, I should have my Bible out. At the very top of it, even before it says, the blessed is the man, it's going to say book 1. If you turn to um, Psalm 42, you're going to see that it says, 
book two and book three and book four and so on. Um, yeah, I do have them all listed out here. Book one is Psalm 1 through 41. Book two is Psalm 42 through 72. Book three is Psalm 73 through 89, 90 through 106, and 107 through 150, respectfully. As you could see, just kind of basically, it's not like, all right, we got five scrolls, we have all these psalms, let's just kind of split them up in five. It wasn't something like that. Because if you do a count of how many psalms are in each of these book, books, first in book one, you'll see there's 41, book two has 31, then 17, another 17, and 44. So they're by no means split evenly. They are divided in five, and um, the number of how they're split does seem random. So at this point, this is pretty much what everyone just sticks with. If you see some outlines of the book of Psalms, usually this is all you get. It says there's five books. There's the five books. We don't really know is what a lot of them will say. Or, or you, might, you might hear commentators say there's not a, a consensus on it, so we're not even going to try. One of the most obvious ways of seeing that this division has some kind of purpose behind it is when you go to the end of each of these. And I'm not sure if I put these up here. I did. So uh, the book one ending, the final verse in book one, Psalm 41.13 reads, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. It's just a nice doxology wrapping it up. Really, you're only going to find these amens in the book of Psalms at the end of books. Book two's ending, Psalm 72, 18 through 19 reads, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Similar in some parts, fuller in that one, but has a blessed be the Lord, something to do with everlasting or forever and closing amen. You might wonder, well, what's book three end like, Jason? Psalm 89, 52 Ending of book three reads, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. It takes all those three basic things and puts it as shortly as it can. There's the blessed be the Lord, the forever, and the amen. You probably already guessed how book four is going to end. Psalm 106, 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let the people say, amen. Praise the Lord. And then it comes in with this new phrase that it's used for the first time throughout the Psalter. Praise the Lord, or um, hallelujah is the um, transliteration of it. Hallelujah. Or actually, that's, just the, that's how you say it, hallelujah, which is a poetic way of, of it's hallelujah, which is a all you people praise, and Yah, that's a poetic short name for Yahweh, God's covenant name. Praise the Lord. And I was surprised because I had always thought, well, the Psalms are a book of praise. You have hallelujahs all throughout them, but you actually don't get them until the very end here of book four, and you get a whole bunch of them in book five. You might guess that you already know how book five ends, but I'm going to tell you you're going to be wrong. Because the last book five is kind of like this grand crescendo. It's, I think of the 1812 overture. Uh, Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture, and then they have literal cannons that just start blowing up, and it's just like this big, bombastic, I mean, noise. I love, I've never seen one live in person, but I love watching videos where, like, there's people, like, lighting cannons on the beat. Uh, it's just, it's so strong. And the psalms as a whole end like this. You have five psalms that end 
well, they actually have, have openers and enders. This is, again, another poetic form that we'll explore more when we get into the individual psalms. But Psalm 46.1 begins with, again, a praise the Lord. Your translation would probably say praise the Lord, or it might say hallelujah. And then Psalm 46 ends with praise the Lord or hallelujah. Psalm 147 begins hallelujah, and it ends hallelujah. Psalm 148 begins hallelujah and ends hallelujah. 149 begins hallelujah, ends hallelujah, and the final one begins with hallelujah, and no surprise, it ends with a hallelujah. They're all bookended with these hallelujahs. Again, this is just the grand finale. It's Tchaikovsky's in 12 Overture. They're blowing up cannons. Well, they're not blowing up cannons. I guess the cannons are, you know how explosions work in those. Anyways, that's really exciting. So very, very obvious, these, these differences. And again, you don't find these, these amens Amen and Amen at the end of any other Psalms unless it's at the end of the book, showing some kind of purposeful structure, some reason that they're put there. Because they're not also, they're not all in chronological order. You, got, you might go, well, maybe it's just chronological order, and then they saw an Amen and they split it. There, there's not a chronology, a precise one. There is a general one, but not a precise one. All right, so looking at structural techniques, we saw how they're divided into five books. Also, we see how they are grouped by author. Last time we talked about how one of the main authors and really most accredited of the Psalms go to David. In the New Testament, they just call them the Psalms of David, even though he didn't necessarily write every single one, as the Psalms themselves will say. This one was by Asaph, or this is by the sons of Korah, or by Moses, or Solomon, so forth and so on. But there are five different groupings. The Psalms, with the Psalms, you get a lot of fives, which is really interesting. There are five different groupings of the Psalms of David. You have in book one, Psalms 3 through 41, book two, 51 through 71, book four, 101 through 103, and this is where you get some, they call these Davidic triads, they're, they're in threes. I believe they also call them triparts. That's a style of artwork that is in threes. Uh, I've seen this a lot in people's dining rooms um, or their living rooms. You'll see like those mirrors that are just split in threes. That's called a tripart. That's, that's a, a, it comes from poetry. Uh, and it's, it's an art form as well. Or you'll see a, a beautiful sunset, but it's split up in threes. looks very artsy. That's what these types of psalms are by David. He has another one in book 5, 108 to 103, and a kind of finale of the Davidic psalms, 138 through 145. Of all of David's psalms, really there's about five or less that are not in these groupings. They still have a purposeful part. They kind of book in other sections we'll look at, but... Um, this, again, shows, okay, well, there's, there's something going on here. Also, if we, let's actually turn to Psalm 7220, because this is kind of one of the main evidences that people will show there's some kind of structure to, this, to the Psalms. There was a collection of Psalms at a certain time, probably around the time of David. What did I say? 7220. So this is the end of book two. The one before it is a, is a Psalm of David. This one is actually a Psalm of Solomon. But if you look at, at verse 20, the very end of it, it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And then you have book three, four, and five. And as you can see there, there are clearly more Davidic Psalms after that. Again, just showing us there was some, someone who, when I say edited, I don't mean like he took away stuff and scratched it off, but compiled it. Maybe a chronicler is a better way to say that, like the chronicler of whoever did chronicles and whatnot. Something more like that. And if you remember last time, actually, Dr. Renahan was here. He was, he was 
he briefly brought this out, and I kind of only paid attention to it since I've been studying this and reading about this stuff. He has a theory that it may have been Ezra. Um, and there's a lot, of, a lot of proof that in ancient Mesopotamia, um, ancient Middle Eastern area, that a lot of stories were told through poetry, because it's a great way to memorize, right? They didn't just have tons of books, couldn't just make copies, printing press wasn't around. So a lot of these cultures have to memorize large portions, and having them in a certain type of poetic form really aid in memorization. It's one reason that songs can really stick in our head, and um, especially rhymes and things like that, nursery rhymes, if you think of those. All right, other groupings that we find in here, Sons of Korah, book two, it opens up book two, actually, this collection of the Sons of Korah. This takes up one third of book two. And then in book three, this takes up another third of that particular book. We have the Songs of Asaph, which they open up, the, open up book three as well, Psalm 73 through 83. That's about two thirds of that book. That's a really small book. And book two, and just other interesting author notes, book two ends with the Song of Solomon, like we just looked at. And book four opens up with a Psalm of Moses. So as you can see, it's definitely not in any kind of chronological order. Um, the Psalm of Moses is the one from um, 1500 BC. Oh, I did say that wrong the other way. Yeah, 1500 BC, the oldest one. All right. Outside of this, we also see the prologue. Commentators, by and large, have seen Psalm 1 as a prologue from ancient commentaries. You'll see people say, Psalm 1 is definitely setting up the story. You all know what a prologue is. Think of when you watch Star Wars and that long scroll comes out telling you everything that's happened and going to happen and kind of the pathway forward. Or in Lord of the Rings, that long monologue or Dune, the really long monologue um, of the old 80s Dune, that is. We, don't, we shouldn't talk about 80s Dune, though. Um, anyways, they're setting up the story. They're telling you what's to come. All, all the, the themes. In music, this is what's called leitmotif. This is a nice musical number that you're going to find throughout the, um, the rest of the composition. Most popular light motifs, again, Star Wars, I think everyone knows that. Dun, 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 dun. Like you, your mind instantly goes, oh no, Darth Vader is going to turn the corner. Something bad's going to happen. It's, it's, a, it's a little playful way to, to show in music that this is going to come up. And this being poetry music that's used all the time in poetry, we find these types of things. Anyways, when we look at the prologue, uh, more and more commentators, and it, this is, it's, I would say it's about a 50-50 split from a lot of the guys I looked at. Um, some people are convinced it's only Psalm 1 is the prologue. I think there's a lot of really strong arguments. I'm fully convinced 1 and 2 are the prologue. And those clearly show kind of the, the main theme. It's talking about the way of righteousness. The second one there, as you can see, actually I think I have a little pointer, little fake laser pointer. Let's see. Yes. Yeah, way of righteousness, right? Way of wickedness. The righteous flourishes in the parasitical garden. Messianic kings reigns in Zion. The outcome of the righteous and the wicked. And the second one also ends with the outcome of the righteous and the wicked. And when you look at a macro view of the entire books, book one primarily deals with this. O. Palmer Robertson will sum up this book one section as, as conflict. He, he uses just five words to kind of sum up all the books. This first one is conflict. And what he's getting at there is... Really, the book of Psalms, like, like we talked about last, last time, Luther was arguing, right, it's, it's a little Bible. It basically has the entire Bible in it, just kind of compressed and tiny. He says, it, it seemed to please the Holy Spirit to make a little Bible. In, in the beginning, right, we have Adam and Eve in the garden, but then the mystery of sin enters, 
And there is going to be a conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that's what we've been seeing all this, all this strife. You know, we looked at it through the Exodus with Pharaoh and God's people being brought out through Exodus. Um, you see that a lot, of, a lot of us and them, a lot of fighting in book one. It's kind of the primary things that are going on. Whether it's, it's internal struggles, you know, sometimes we're just talking about poverty or disease or sin, or half, more than half of them are external enemies. Uh, book two, again, is going to really focus on, on a, a um, future Zion and the current reign of the Messianic king. Again, this is a huge theme of Psalm 2, and it's all throughout the Psalms. You cannot miss. Um, I, I think if you only th- are only convinced that Psalm 1 is kind of the main paradigm for the Psalms, and you're just looking for the blessed man, you're going to mostly get that. And, and what I've seen some Bible teachers say is like, well, the blessed man is the Christian, but the blessed man par excellence is Christ. And so they get to the Messianic king anyways. But, but there, there definitely is a distinction between the two. Yes, Christ is the par excellent blessed man. Um, he's right the, pro, the progenitor. He is the first fruits of the new creation. But there is a difference in, in his role as messianic king as well. They, of course, are related, and we'll get into all those. I'm really excited to get into Psalm 1 and 2 together and just show how they flow throughout the Psalms. And then lastly, it's about, well, how does this story end, right? Every good story it has an ending, hopefully one that is resolved and makes sense. You kind of want to know what your main character is, what happened to them. And when we do see the outcome of the righteous and the wicked, both at the end of Psalm 1 and 2, and ultimately in books 4 through 5, the entire Psalter as a whole. Oops. I didn't know how to make that laser go away. I don't use that enough. All right. I didn't proof. I didn't proofread my. I I was trying to do just paper, but then I had so many charts. I was like, I gotta put this up. So, some of these are not gonna make sense because half of this already showed up. Anyways, we see the structural technique divided into five books, grouped by author. We see there's a prologue. Clearly, we're gonna run into a lot of kingship and kingship of Yahweh and his Messiah Psalms. And eventually, at one point in the Psalms, and it's really the only part in the Bible that you see this. You see a merging of. Yahweh's throne and the Messiah's throne. And this is hugely important for New Testament theology as well, how can this man, how can this man overtake, not necessarily overtake, but sit in the seat alongside or with Yahweh the king? This doesn't make any sense. One thing that we are also going to see throughout these Psalms is that the Davidic covenant, since these are primarily about David, written by David, the Davidic covenant is one of the overarching themes as well. And the Davidic covenant is important because in covenant theology, it is the final covenant that we have in the Old Testament, right? When we think of the, of the Old Covenant, when we say that, we're usually talking about the Mosaic covenant. Of course, the Mosaic covenant is built off the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is promising God's people a land, right, and, and his rule as well. The Mosaic covenant really fleshes it out, explains how it's going to be dealt with in the very nitty-gritty, right? We're in the middle of that with Pastor Ryan going through Exodus and Leviticus now. And ultimately, when we get to the Davidic covenant, it's talking about now, okay, a, a, a dynasty and a dwelling place. So, and this was promised even before the time of Moses um, to Abraham's children, right? To, to Judah. The scepter from Judah is never going to leave. There's a promise of a king already. Uh, the, we're getting to the Davidic covenant more next time. There's, there's, there are just... You could 
I, I don't know if I have the graph, but there, there's some that's just like, okay, here's 1 Samuel chapter 5, it relates to this psalm, and the next chapter to that psalm, and it's just, it just flows along with Samuel. So the, the importance of the Davidic covenant is really huge in this. We're going to see a lot about the Messiah's kingship and against his Messiah. And of course, at this time, when we think Messiah, we usually think of Christ because we're on this side of the cross, right? But in Old Testament times, David is a proper Messiah. He is one of the anointed ones, right? He wasn't the only Messiah, and they ultimately knew that there was an ultimate Messiah to come. If you remember last time, we looked at even the prophets, how when they were talking about a David to come, they didn't, you know, we use the word like a greater David or David is a type of Christ. They just said straight up David. Long after David's dead, buried in the grave, they're still looking for that David character, which we ultimately know is Christ. Um, Yahweh Malak Psalms, we'll get into those later. Psalms of Ascent, um, that's another popular grouping. You'll find 120 through 134. That one's, that one's a little more familiar. Historical Recollections, there's a couple of groups of those, 105 to 106, 135 to 137. You have Poetic Pyramids. This is a um, certain type of structure that you find a lot in the Psalms. And let me see where I'm at so I don't skip. Hallelujah Psalms, we saw those in 146 to 150, right? Those closed up the entire book of Psalms. There are a couple more collections of them. Psalm 104 to 106, that's the closing of book four. And then in the middle of book five, 111 to 117, those hallelujah, all you peoples, praise the Lord, those Psalms, specifically praise Yahweh. And then we have an epilogue. Again, that's kind of the, the final hallelujah as we looked at those. You know, prologue's your opener, epilogue's your closer. You think of stories where after the credits, they show a little bit like, oh, that couple got married, or they lived happily ever after, or whichever character survived the movie. Oh, look, those ones got married, and now their kids are going to the school. Oh, it's so sweet. It's gone all full circle. Things like that. We have that epilogue ultimately ending the same way Revelation ends. Um, because when you get to the book of Revelation, again, in the New Testament, you don't ever find the word hallelujah until you get to the final chapters of Revelation. So it closes, just like the Psalms close, with these hallelujahs. This is after the consummation. All is at peace. Um, all, all of our enemies on all sides. I mean, this happened to David right at one time. He has no more enemies, and they're at rest. They're at peace. Um, it was ultimately temporary for them. For us, it will ultimately be forever. So. And that is really just to name a few of the different categories. And these, these types of psalms are always grouped up together, or they kind of bookend other important parts of the psalms. Again, just giving a lot of validity to there's some kind of purposeful placement of these psalms. I definitely can't think that they are helter-skelter random the more and more I uh, look into this. All right. So here is one example, Psalm 67, of seeing the um, poetic, different ways of poetry that come throughout this. And we'll look at some of this more when we get into the individual books. For our purposes now, uh, we're going to look at it very, very broadly. Let me see. Laser. Very cool. All right. Psalm 67. It's only seven verses. It's really short. This is one that shows a lot of example of Hebrew poetry. This is a, um, a chiasmus. So you all have probably heard preachers talking about Hebrew parallelism. Um, that's, that's very common. That's very well known. Think of um, 
God be gracious to us and bless us. And then they basically say it again in another way and cause his face to shine upon us. We find all throughout the Bible, the blessing of God is equated with his, shining his face upon us. That your way may be made known through the earth, your salvation among the nations, right? This is saying the same thing twice. The earth, all nations, one and the same. His way, he's talking about salvation. This is what Christ talks about. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's referring to salvation. Anyways, when we, this, this type of structure is a, let me actually go to this slide real quick, because this is a chiasmus. This is something very easily seen in the, the most basic form, just looks like this. And it's called a chi, because in Greek, it's that, that X. It looks like a chi. Um, some popular ones in English, let's see if I can remember all the ones I was telling my wife earlier. Uh, John F. Kennedy, ask not what, so look at the A here, ask not what your country, countries are A, can do for you, B, and then it just flips it around. But what you, B, can do for your country, A. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Other ones, um, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, right? It's just flipped. And when you say these things like that, it sounds very sage-like. It sounds like a little proverb. It sounds, you're using the same words, but you just flip them. It makes them sound obvious. It's also a great way to memorize these things. At the very beginning of the Psalms, we're going to see that the purpose of the Torah, of God's law, of God's word, is for us to memorize them, to meditate on them day and night. And these type of poetic devices are a great aid in doing that. That's the most basic form of that structure. Um, other ways you'll, you'll see this, it'll get more complicated, kind of like this. So if you look at verse 1 and verse 7, this is a chiastic structure. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. And it now ends, it's kind of brackets, it ends the same way. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him, right? This is equated with his face shining upon us. This is also going to go with the main theme. One benefit that you could see in these chiastic structures is, is some people will call them a poetic pyramid. That's how Palmer Robertson likes to call them. A poetic pyramid because they're pointing to an apex. They, they have a climax in the song. So verse 2, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. Look at verse 3 and 5. Again, we're kind of going up, climbing this, this pinnacle here. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Look at verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That one is just verbatim, word for word, no variation. Very obvious where the structure is getting at. And then here at the pinnacle, we've reached it. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with a brightness and guide the nations on the earth. Selah. One difference between Western poetry and Eastern poetry like this is, in our poetry, we're more concerned with rhythm, with rhyme, um, with cadence of words, things like that. In Hebrew poetry, it's more bringing out a, a sense of, of terms, of meanings, like helping you see an idea, see what the central point is. It does this through, through several different ways, that chiastic structure or that poetic pyramid. Also, if you notice, here it talks about a tricolon. So if you notice here, this is all broke. Verse one is two lines. This is two lines, this is two lines. Five, six, and seven, they're all two lines. This one's three lines. There's something extra about it. It really stands out, it sticks out, right? It's, it's the center of the psalm. It's what the first one and the last one are talking about. It all focuses in there. You find this all throughout the Bible. This is a, a very standard way of poetry and writing in Middle Eastern times. You'll find plenty of secular sources that do this. Um, it was really popular even through Greek and Roman times as well. 
Um, as some examples, you'll find this kind of structure in Exodus. The very first song we have in the Bible, the Song of Moses, it's purposely, you really can't really see that. It's just kind of to help you see that pyramid. But in the middle of this, the main point is that God, in his love, led his people that he has redeemed. This is, this is the main point of the Exodus. He has led them out for his own purposes. And you see just, again, these chiastic structures all throughout Scripture. Um, the Song of Solomon is, is like that. It starts with, take me away. It ends with, come away. It then gets into the friend speaks, and they are friends. My own vineyard, my own vineyard. And you just go on and on and on and on. Um, wine and milk, wine and milk. And the apex is when these two meet up, and they're talking about being in, into his garden, into my garden. They, each of these singers kind of join up at this point in the song. And it's just a beautiful poetry that we often miss because it's, we, we can't really show that in, in our English tongue, unfortunately. Genesis, with the Noah narrative, it's also the same way. It starts with Noah, then goes on to Shem, Ham, Japheth, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and on and on it goes. The waters increase, the waters abide. I think Pastor Ryan, if I recall, actually mentioned this chiastic structure when he was going through this portion. Um, and right in the middle, God remembers Noah. It starts with Noah, it ends with Noah. God remembers Noah. Nearly the same pattern like Psalm 67, and many of the Psalms are like this. Um, the book of Revelation is very much like this as well. It's one of the reasons we see it as a secular pattern, typically. But anyways, uh, to show some other... I think you guys get the point there. So we'll go through some of the more poetry. Uh, for sake of time, I will um, move on. Any questions about this stuff? I'm not a literary major, so don't get, make them too deep. Just kidding. All right. So often, commentators do this a lot. You really can find any commentary on the Psalms, even some basic ones, like study Bibles will sometimes bring these things out, and they'll note some of the, the cool poetry, right? But that's about all they do, kind of showing you the structure. Um, but they usually stop there because they have the presupposition, well, the Psalms are self-contained, so just kind of deal with that individual Psalms. What happens, though, when you zoom out and apply these same principles? Again, I showed, I showed these other ones because there are large chunks of the Bible that do this. One third of the Bible is poetry. Um, even in the New Testament, we have poetic devices like this, as I showed in the book of Revelation. Um, when you do this to, to groups of Psalms, they, again, you, just see, you see so much purposefulness in how they're put together. For example, so here is kind of the first sections of the Psalms. We have Psalms one through 14. I don't like the way this guy set up this chart his, his information is really good, but it looks like he did this on like an Excel spreadsheet. So we're just going to talk about it. All right, so there are two subgroups of five laments. Man, that laser is really fun. Of five laments, as you can see, three through seven and 10 through 14, right? So we have the prologue. We have a Torah psalm. We have a song about the Messianic king, um, Yahweh's kingship as well. These are kingship psalms. And you will find these together all throughout the psalms. You typically don't have one without the other. 19 and 20 do this. Uh, 119, a big one about the Torah. 118 is a kingship psalm, so forth and so on. Uh, as you can see, these are bookended by Psalm 8 and 9. So these, these laments kind of go to Psalm 8 and 9. Again, that's that pinnacle. This is kind of the highest point of this group of psalms here. The superscription in each of these subgroups 
archaistically structured as well. And there, there's so many obvious hints that there is a structure to these. If I recall, like three stars, it talks about the strings. 14 talks about strings. Four will talk about flutes. 13 will talk about flutes. Don't quote me on that, I'm, but the, it's, it's structured like that. This one is for this occasion. This one's for that same occasion. And they all just point to here's, here's the pinnacle, the, that top of that poetic pyramid. Also, each subgroup, as you can see, is followed by day and night psalms. These are really fascinating. Um, we'll talk about those a little bit more. A day and night sequence. And these are also sequenced in um, Psalm chapter 3 is talking about external enemies. That's what the lament's about, external enemies from the outside. Four, personal distress. Five is external hostilities. Six is personal distress. Seven is external hostilities. It gets to the pinnacle part, and then goes into another pattern like this. Um, these are communal laments. So here you'll have language where it's, it's us. Oh, Lord, help us. Do this for us, us, us. And with 11, it is primarily individual laments. I, Lord, me. It's primarily personal pronouns. A collective lament, an individual lament, a collective lament. And they're structured in such a way, I go, okay, that's not random. Uh, there's something to that. So just to go through some examples of kind of the uh, external hostilities. Psalm 3.1, save me, O my God, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Psalm 5.8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. And Psalm 7, again, in external hostilities. 7.1, O Lord, my God, in you I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. And again, that, that day-night pattern, this one you are again dealing with, with motifs, light motifs. Some examples of it, I'll just go through kind of the, the first three. Um, these are called day psalms. And here you'll find they have, at some point, they're calling God to arise or they're, they're beckoning him in the morning. Uh, psalm 3, 7, for example, says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. 5, 3 through 4 reads, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And then 7, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. In the latter group, you'll get to 10 and again get more day psalms. Arise, O Lord God, lift up your hand. That's 10, 12. 12, 5. Because the poor has been plundered, because the the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. So the Lord has now answered the call. He is now saying, yes, I will arise. Again, just following this pattern. Um, Psalm, yeah, again, another um, day one, Psalm 919. Arise, O Lord, let not men prevail. Let the nations be judged by you. Again, there's a lot more we could look into that, and we'll get into it when we get to each section. I'm going to show more graphs. This is just for a very bird's eye view. I'm not going to go through it. We only have 10 minutes left anyways. But again, you zoom out, and you see these kinds of structures all throughout the Psalms. This is book one. This actually comes from uh, Gianni Barbero's structure of the book. Um, he, I'm very thankful to Dr. Peter C.H. Ho, who has taken his work, I, I think it's in Italian, um, and has translated all the, this kind of stuff and even adapted it. So, so he does have some modifications in here. So this is all their stuff. This is not by any means mine. You zoom out even more, you see these chiastic structures all throughout the books, these groupings. And they're always bookmarked by, by certain different types of psalms, whether it's groups of David, groups of Korah, things like that. Books four through five, 
just more groups that, like, okay, there's something there. Lots and lots of charts. All right. When you get into the central motif, so kind of like we were looking at Psalm 67, and it was talking about God, save us. God, save the nations. And in the middle, it's let the nations be glad. God, judge them in uprightness, save them. Um, when you look at all the central motifs, sorry, yes, yeah, the group central motifs, not the grand central motifs, that's a different term. Again, in book one, we find a prologue. Primarily, 3 through 14, the apex of it is Yahweh's cosmic kingship, judgment from Zion, again, all stuff fitting within the prologue. The victorious messianic king, the Torah is glorified, and lots of, lots of psalms about the glory, the goodness of God's word, right? Dedication of the historical Zion temple, Yahweh's kingship, and the supplication of an afflicted David. When you look at the next groups, we see a messianic king and his bride. And I cannot wait to get to this section about, of the Psalms and talking about the messianic king's bride. Of course, as Christians, you go, oh, hey, that's us. We're the bride of Christ. Um, we, there's so much theology and, and richness in the Psalms where, yes, in the individual ones, you, you are blessed. But in, in the groups and seeing what they're about, I think there's even more blessing there. Anyways, because of the fall of the Davidic kingship, the fall of the Zion Temple. Again, these are major events because in the Davidic covenant, we're promised a dynasty and the king is, is broken. And we're promised um, a dwelling place and the temple has fallen. What is going to happen? Here again, you, Psalm 51, uh, David sent with Bathsheba is in here, part of the fall of David. 84-39, supplication of an afflicted David. Again, we start seeing even patterns in these. Book four through five, the groupings, Yahweh's cosmic kingship again, judgment from Zion, victorious messianic king, the Torah glorified, the restoration, eschatological Zion temple, and the divine messianic kingship and supplications of David. And when you put them all together, you can see they always start with Yahweh's kingship or the Messiah's kingship, and they all end with supplications of David. And in the middle here, you have the fall of kingdoms. Actually, I think I wrote down this so I didn't have to say it. Yeah, so in short, this is, this is kind of what, what is the overarching structure telling us? In short, concentricity occurs horizontally across the four groups in each of the three sections. And this is Peter Ho's words. Um, as well as vertically down the three sections. Actually, I think that is, that'll be the next one. Yeah. Linearity occurs primarily verted down the two center groups in all three sections here. Hence, the concentric linear structure celebrates Yahweh's messiahship, kingship, despite tracing the fall of the Davidic kingdom and the Zion temple at the center of the Psalter. The four central motifs in section one are mirrored in section three. So all, all of it starts and ends the same. This is very standard for a chiastic poetry, right? The four central motifs in section one are mirrored in three. The differences in three is that both the Davidic kingship and the Zion temple are now characterized as the ideal Davidic king and the paradisical Zion. So it's, it's one yet to come. They know they, they still want their David. They know David's gone. But there's still one yet to come. They want their Zion. They know there's one, a better one yet to come. We can further surmise our discussion by this figure here. We highlight two peculiarities in the structural design. 
First, there are unchanging motifs of Yahweh's universal kingship and supplication down the left and the right frame. These two static motifs bind dual developing motifs of the Davidic kingship and Zion in the second and third columns. It's very typical of poetry. Again, in ancient Middle Eastern poetry, books are structured like this all the time. It's not untypical or strange. While the consistency of the Davidic supplication to the right frame suggests a persistent presence of affliction and distresses, they are counterbalanced by the continual restatements of Yahweh's kingship. This persistent Davidic supplication in affliction recalls 1 Kings 11.39, where God raised up Jeroboam because of Solomon's rebellion, saying, quote, I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, his turning from Yahweh, but not forever, end quote. As in the last phrase of 1 Kings 11.39, this supplication will not be forever. The concluding motif of the entire Psalter found in the final Hallels, right, the ones we looked at, after the Davidic collection in the third section is praise, a fitting end to the Psalms. Second, our analysis show that the macro structure shape of the Psalter is an ingenious design integrating poetical designs such as superscriptions, inclusions, numerical, thematic, genre, editorial techniques. Correspondence, collaboration, and coherence of technique form the content consistently across the entire macro structure of the Psalter, and it makes our position that, that this is how it's structured highly plausible. Our study shows that the concentric structuring technique is a major literary tool employed in the final, by the final editors to explicate meaning. The chiasmus expressing parallelism, symmetry in various forms, is more prevalent in the Hebrew Bible than we would normally perceive. This technique, as noted, is one of antiquity and practice in ancient Mesopotamia. So the overarching message of the macrostructure, according to Peter Ho, is what? To sum it up most succinctly, Book 1 traces the establishment of both the Davidic kingship and Zion. Book 2 through 3 depict their fall and brokenness. And books 4 through 5 talk about the reestablishment of ideal kingship and Zion. The Psalms follow closely, well, actually I'll end, I'll end with saying the Psalters look forward to an ideal secure and just dwelling place, ultimately an eschatological dwelling place, right? We still we look for a home yet to come, as Hebrews would talk about, brought about by a messianic king. The Psalter exhorts its readers to persevere in prayer and hope in view of Yahweh's covenantal promises. Let me skip to the end, too. This is one of those examples showing how the Davidic covenant, really the life of David, is portrayed throughout all of the five groupings of David's psalms. There's some summary on that. I'll post this, and I'll, I'll also post the links when I post this message on where you can get these, these PDFs to explore that more. But as we go through the psalms, we'll dive into them more. Let's close with this from, I believe, this might be, this is either O. Palmer Robertson, or Dr. Ho, I'm not sure, we'll find out. He writes, it is significant that the trajectory traced here does not simply address the few often quoted Psalms in the New Testament, but coheres strikingly with the broad Christological interpretation of the Psalms. What he's talking about here is, if you grew up like me, when it came to how 
the New Testament authors would use the Psalms and find Christ in them, I remember a pastor saying, well, yeah, when you read the text in its context, Christ isn't there, but they're apostles, and so they're allowed to do that because they were gifted by the Holy Spirit. And it, it felt like cheating, and I was never satisfied with that answer. And I'm really thankful for um, all the studies we've done over the last, um, how long have I been here? I don't even know, 15 plus years or whatever, um, of, of, of finding Christ throughout the Bible, of using the hermeneutic that Christ used and the apostles. It wasn't that, oh, they're just cheating and finding Christ here and there when it's convenient. He said, no, this is a New Testament hermeneutic. This is how the Bible is interpreted. It's not only in the New Testament. It's found explicitly all throughout the Psalms and the Old Testament. Anyways, he goes on. This is, this is Dr. Ho here saying, in other words, the New Testament's understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus as the fulfillment of the messianic hopes in Davidic Psalms is a formidable and reasonable interpretation and need not be an anachronistic reading. Lastly, what we're going to see in the Psalms and the New Testament ways that they, they parallel are explicit, and they are all throughout the Psalms. The, character, the characterization of the ideal Davidic figure is as follows. He's going to be blameless, a shepherd, victorious, messianic priest king, Torah pious, and son of God. The king is both afflicted and victorious. Two triumphant depictions of victory over death and one depiction of his death we'll see as well. The raging of the nations against Jesus and false accusations that led to his condemnation all throughout. It's a huge motif throughout the Psalms, a backstabbing brother. Jesus ushers in the sheer blessing of the Davidic promises and submits his kingship to God the Father at the end. Through the brokenness of Jesus, sacrifice is accepted to God. Jesus as the better Moses and David. I mean, the Psalms are so rich. The rejection of Jesus and building of God's house. One more slide. The concept of a new song in the book of Revelation as the dawn of a new era, which Christ ushers in, right? Persistent supplication of the people of God until the coming of the new era. Oh, there's more. The people of God will reign with Jesus at Zion. A concluding call for the people of God to heed the word of God and the expression hallelujah, the eschatological consummation of praise. With that, we will end. Um, My argument is that the structure of the Psalms is not random. And as we go through the Psalms, we'll dive into that more. Um, Of course, if you don't ultimately fall into that, it's fine. Um, I do pray and hope that our time in the Psalms will be fruitful.